when you know what you don't know, you're actually in pretty good shape. Because you can then objectively make an effort to learn something and change for the better as a result of what you know. It's when you don't know that you don't know. Let's have a real problem. And that's where we find the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians when Paul writes this letter to them. A big part of the problem in Corinth was that they thought that they knew more than they really knew. They thought that they loved more than they really loved. And they thought that they were more mature in the faith than they really were. The result of this, not knowing what they didn't know, the result of it was pride, selfishness, and they ended up functioning as a result of their pride and selfishness in disunity with one another. Even though Paul's outlined several of the problems that they're going through, beginning in chapter 1, the gross immorality and the the lawsuits that are filed against each other, the marriage problems that they had, the abuse of the Lord's table, and so on. Those aren't the root problems. Those are the symptoms of the root problem. The real disease was that they thought that they knew more than they really do. They thought that they loved more than they really loved, and they thought they were more mature than they really were. That's the root which had resulted in disunity. All the problems that we find in Corinth can be traced back to pride and selfishness which resulted in disunity in the church. They needed desperately to take an objective look at themselves. Paul talks about examining themselves. They needed desperately to do that. They needed to learn what they needed to learn. Then love God. And then love their fellow believer more as a result of what they have learned. And that would put them in a position to finally live. You know, we talk about being alive, but I'm talking about really living, the kind of life that Jesus Christ talked about. I came to give you life, and not just life, but I came to give it to you abundantly. That kind of life I'm talking about, not just a life of material prosperity. Sometimes people take that and they twist it into a material gospel. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But there is such a thing as an abundant life. There's a life that we live there where we're walking in fellowship with God consistently, where we find contentment, even in the midst of the trials of life, especially in the trials of life we can find contentment. That's what we really need to do. So first we need to learn, then love. Finally we'll be able to live that abundant life, the life that we were designed to live. This is the life God has for us with our children. If we could design it all out, we can't unfortunately, but if we could design it all out, we would design a life for them where they would walk along a path of righteousness and obedience to God because we know that's where true blessing is going to come from. That's where real happiness is going to come from. We wouldn't give them counterfeit happiness, would we? We wouldn't interject some things into their life that may bring something that would be a counterfeit happiness, but momentary happiness, but we know that they would have long-term problems as a result of it. We wouldn't do that. Well, God doesn't do it either. And he knows in Corinth the biggest problem that they had is pride. Because they thought they knew more than they really knew. They thought they were loving more than they were really loving. And they thought they were more mature than they really were. And the result of all of that was they had a fragmented church. A church full of disunity. And that kind of church does not glorify God. Not in the first century. And it doesn't glorify God in the 21st century. Now that we've come to chapters 12 through 14... We need to keep in mind, even though the subject matter has changed, it's going to change from the Lord's table. It's not gross immorality anymore. It's not the Lord's abuses of the Lord's table. It's not lawsuits against one another. 
It's not marriage problems. The subject matter is going to change, but don't forget this. The root problem hasn't changed. Now he's just discussing another symptom. It would be like if you have one of these things that's been going around that's gotten so many people uh, in our church and other places down so much. You know, they have sneezing and runny eyes and sore throat and fever and congestion in their lungs. You see, all those are symptoms that are a result of something that's attacking their body. So maybe some microorganism or some allergy or whatever it may be. But you need to get at the root cause before the organism is really going to be well. And so what Paul is doing, he wants to go to the root cause. Now, chapters 12 through 13 are enormously controversial in Christianity today. I think the main reason they're controversial is because they're often taken in isolation from the rest of the book. And we don't see what Paul's really dealing with here. It's a continuation of what he's been dealing with since chapter 1, when they were arguing over who baptized him and all the disunity that that brought into the church. What they're arguing about now and what they are setting up themselves with respect now is an abuse of spiritual gifts. Last chapter it was an abuse of the Lord's table. But now they're abusing spiritual gifts. And what's happening in Corinth was what was happening a lot in the surrounding culture. In Corinth, they decided that certain people were inherently more spiritual than other people. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about experientially more spiritual with respect to their walk, but I'm talking about they're just inherently more spiritual. By virtue of their position in church or by virtue of their position in life, they're more spiritual than others. Now, where did they get that from? They probably got it from the pagan culture that surrounded them. Because in the pagan culture that surrounded them, if you did certain things in that culture, you were considered to be inherently more spiritual. And one of the things that was going on in the pagan mystery religions that surrounded Corinth was something that was akin to speaking in a babbling language and jumping up and down, twirling around and involving themselves in what they called ecstatics, translating from a Greek term. There's an overlay over this, these whole three chapters. Is that listen... Spiritual gifts are given for the common good. They're supposed to be helpful, not hurtful. The way you're using them is hurtful. They're supposed to be for everybody. Everybody's on a level playing field in the body of Christ. We'll see that next week in next week's lesson. Everybody's on a level playing field. There are no superstars, not in the sense of inherent Christianity. Now, granted, there are people that that practice their faith more than others. I'm not saying that. But in terms of their position, you're not any more spiritual if you have, in this case, in first century Corinth, you're not any more spiritual if you have the gift of tongues than if you have the gift of prophecy, for example. You're no more spiritual if you have the gift of interpretation of tongues or the gift of miracles. All this in the first century context, remember. But some of them thought, well, I speak in tongues, I'm better than you. And the whole church was starting to buy that. And Paul said, wait a minute, hold on, here we go again. You remember how that old thing Reagan said in a debate, political debate one time, here we go again. Well, that's what Paul must have been thinking. Here we go again. You know, this is just another manifestation of the fact that you don't know as much as you think you know. And because of that, you're not loving as much as you really should be loving. That's the key, isn't it? That's the key applicational principle in the whole Christian life is love. And because you're not loving like you really should love, you're not living like you have the potential to live. If you really want to fulfill your potential as a Christian, if you want to have a better life now then you need to love God and you need to love one another. That's the key to an abundant Christian life. Now, it may not put more money in your bank account. Frankly, I don't care if it does. I hope God supplies every need that you have, but that's not what I'm here for. 
I'm here to do my best to make sure you live an abundant life the way God wants you to live that life. And in order to do that, you've got to learn and love first. The Corinthians were abusing the concept of spiritual gifts, but never forget the underlying reason, the underlying cause. As we move through these chapters, we will observe certain people in Corinth placing certain spiritual gifts in a position of hierarchy. Even in our culture, we have offices, say, within our republic that should be respected. If the President of the United States walked into this room right now, whether you're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent, whatever it would be, I would hope if you're a citizen of the United States of America that you would stand and out of respect for the office of the President of the United States, no matter who that President is, whether it was the current President or the previous President or the one before that, out of respect for the office, because that office is held in, in some esteem. In our culture, we do have things where an office is respected. In the Christian life, we're told to respect those who are in leadership over us, but it doesn't mean they're inherently more valuable or inherently superior with respect to their own spiritual life. I hope you see what we're saying. But in the next lesson, Paul's going to use a body metaphor talking about how every part of the body is equally as important to the other. We need all the parts to function well. All parts need to be present and watch. All parts need to be functioning in a healthy way. There are no innocent bystanders in Christianity. There are, no, there are no people that just get to spectate in Christianity. We all do something. Now, that something may not be public. I'm, I'm talking in terms of before the whole congregation. It may be just pulling somebody else aside and saying, Hey, listen, how are you feeling? You know, or, or making a phone call or writing somebody a card or taking somebody out to lunch and, and with a gift of encouragement or something like that. There, but everybody's got a role to play. Every single person has a role to play in the body of Christ. And that'll be what Paul will say next. But in Corinth, there was an attitude of superiority that was fragmenting this church. To cut to the chase, those that had the more sensational gifts considered themselves superior to those that possessed maybe a more mundane gift. The specific gift that was most admired in the church at Corinth was the gift of speaking in tongues. It was so admired that it may have been that there were those in Corinth that did not actually possess the gift that were trying to speak in tongues without the gift of tongues because they felt like it would make them appear more spiritual. I hope you caught me. Because of this hierarchy that they themselves had set up, this counterfeit hierarchy, it appears as though that there were those in Corinth that were doing something that they thought was speaking in tongues without the giftedness of speaking in tongues. In other words, it wasn't really speaking in tongues. That happens today sometimes, too. There was an article, I believe it was in Christianity Today, some years ago, of teaching people about how to speak in tongues. Now, if it's the first century gift of speaking in tongues, you don't have to be taught how to do that. And I believe the phrase was shamalaka. Shamalaka, 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 shamalaka. Well, we'll cut that part out of the tape in case anybody just does that part. <laughs> no, I'm talking about the Christianity Today article. And I'm not, I'm not really trying to make fun, but I'm, I'm saying that, that if you don't have that gift, don't force it. And some people in Corinth were forcing the gift. And that's part of the overlay of what's going on here. 
Granted, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid this is a difficult three chapters, to be sure, but I think if we get the overlay right, then the details will be more readily understood. In these chapters, it's very important to note, Paul is not arguing against the legitimate use of the gift of tongues. He's even going to say so in chapter 14. He is not arguing against the legitimate use of the gift of tongues in Corinth. He's arguing against the illegitimate use of something that counterfeited the first century gift of tongues. There is no question that speaking in tongues as a genuine expression of a spiritual gift was perfectly legitimate at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. You cannot read 1 Corinthians and come to any other conclusion. He is going to say, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. So we need to start with that. There is no question that speaking in tongues as a genuine expression of the spiritual gift, not the counterfeit stuff, but as a genuine expression of the spiritual gift was perfectly legitimate at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. The question does exist as to whether or not speaking in tongues is legitimate for today. And we will discuss that at great length in future lessons. It's going to come up. I don't believe that speaking in tongues is a legitimate function for the local church today. And I'm going to do my best to validate that for you in a loving and kind way when we get to that material. But in brief, in my view, the textual evidence is that speaking in tongues was a special revelatory gift that was designed to be phased out after the completion and circulation of the canon of Scripture. I don't think we can put a date on it. But after the completion and then the circulation of the canon of Scripture, which took decades, if not a century or so, then I believe it was designed to be phased out. The canon of Scripture was completed in AD 96 or thereabouts when the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation. But it took some time for it to be compiled and then circulated. I don't know exactly when that was. I don't think that anybody does. But the early church father, Chrysostom, who lived between 347 and 407 A.D. In other words, around the same time of Augustine. He would have been a little older than Augustine. He wrote in his time that the miraculous gifts like tongues and healing had long since passed away in his time. If Chrysostom is, is to be believed, and there really isn't any real good reason to doubt him, he's a respected early church father, then tongues and the other sign gifts faded out sometime between the end of the first century and the middle of the fourth century. Having said that, my good friend Fred Stowe at breakfast with me one day talked to me about a report he had had from a missionary friend of his that was in the jungles of South America. And this was a respected man. Fred Stowe's a respected man. I hope you all realize that. And this friend was a respected man. He knew him well. That this man said on a missionary journey in the jungles of South Africa that he, he began spontaneously speaking in the dialect of the particular tribe that he was ministering to. And Fred and I talked about that for a while. He said, what do you think about that? I said, I have no problem with that. I've heard other reports of missionaries, for example, in Haiti that did not know French, 
that spontaneously began speaking in French. People have asked me, what do you think about that? I said, I have no problem with that. I don't think that's the first century gift of tongues. I think that's a miracle. And God can do a miracle any time he wants to do a miracle. It's not normative. Ordinarily, if you're going to join a mission agency, you don't get to put down on the form, I think I have the gift of tongues. I'm not going to go to the language classes. They throw you out. What you typically do, if you're going to go minister in France, you take a six-month course of immersion in France. And you learn French or German or, or whatever the language may be. That's the normative way of doing it. But like Charles Stanley, the pastor of First Baptist Atlanta, once said, when asked about this very thing, he said, listen, I'm not going to put God in a box. God can do anything he wants to do. If he wants somebody to start speaking in French, then he can start speaking in French. If he wants somebody to start speaking in a particular dialect of a South American tribe that, he does, that they don't know the dialect, then that's his business. But we ought not to confuse that, which I believe is a miracle. And I don't doubt the testimony of people like that. I don't doubt it. But we ought not to confuse that with what was happening in the first century in the church at Corinth. In the first place, those things are happening on the mission field. Tongues was for primarily use in the local church and had a specific reason. We'll talk about it a little bit later. If somebody asks you about some missionary in Haiti that started speaking French, praise God. I hope they got the gospel right when they did. And if God's going to cause them to start speaking French, then I'm sure they got the gospel right too. But it can happen. I don't doubt their testimony. But I would add this, and I hope somebody, some or many of you are planning on doing some sort of long-term missionary activity. I would go to a language school. I'd get the tapes, run down to the Galleria and get the Rosetta Stone, start with that. Do something, do something to learn the language so that you can actually give the gospel on a consistent basis. I wouldn't count on a miracle. The reason they call it a miracle is because it's not normative. If it was normative, it would no longer be a miracle. But I don't think that's the first century gift. That's not how the gift was practiced in the first place. In the first seven verses of chapter 12, Paul explained, and we studied this last week, that a spiritual gift is given by the Holy Spirit to be publicly manifested, phanerosis or phanero, the verb, not privately practiced, encrypto. You remember we talked about that word encrypto where we hear the word encryption. It was to be Phonorosis, it was to be publicly manifested, not privately practiced. It was designed to be for the common advantage or profit of others, not for our own profit or self-fulfillment. <laughs> then, in verses 8 through 10, Paul gives a roster of some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's quite probable that most of, if not all of these gifts, passed away before the 4th century, in the time of Chrysostom. But it's helpful to consider the list. Listen to verses 8 through 12. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Are you noticing something that's in common there in all those phrases? By the one Spirit, by the same Spirit. There's a point that he's making. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, distinguishing spirits, and to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. A review of the scholarly literature about these verses reveals a wide range of opinion with respect to the specific nature of these gifts. 
a word of wisdom by means of the Holy Spirit may have been the ability to give wise counsel when needed. But more likely, given the context, the scholars that study this verse believe that Paul used the terms wisdom and foolishness previously in the epistle in a certain context. And in this context, it probably is, should be used the same. In other words, the wisdom that's being spoken of here is a proper gospel presentation. Remember how earlier on we said the, the cross was foolishness to those who don't believe? The opposite of the foolishness being wisdom. Many also hold that the word of knowledge also rates, relates in some way to a proper presentation of the gospel. They put those two gifts together almost as if they were one gift. The faith that is referred to here, faith by the same spirit, cannot mean saving faith. That's one thing that we can eliminate because everybody in Corinth had saving faith, but not everybody had this gift. So it's got to be a different kind of entity. It was a special endowment of faith for a specific service. A special endowment of faith for a specific service. Gifts of healing, among the most controversial, certainly. Gifts of healing were a part of Jesus' ministry, as well as the apostles. They performed healing. But when they performed healing, remember this, it was not for the primary purpose of alleviating the suffering of the one that they were healing. Did you catch that? First time I heard Dwight Pentecost say that, I, I kind of did a double take. I said, did I, did I just hear him right? Get, when someone was healed in the time of the Messianic time of Jesus Christ or in the Apostolic time, the healing wasn't primarily to alleviate the suffering of the one being healed. Of course, that's part of it. That's one of the reasons why. But the primary reason why one would be healed would be to authenticate or validate the ministry of the one who was doing the healing. In other words, Jesus Christ couldn't just come and say, I'm the Messiah. As Josephus reports, there were many messiahs, counterfeit messiahs in Palestine at that time. He proved that he was the Messiah by virtue of both his words and his works. If it weren't for his works, we wouldn't have any reason to believe him. If it wasn't for the resurrection, why would we believe him as opposed to one of these other people? I think one of them was also named Jesus, one of the other so-called messiahs. The apostles had a word from God. Sometimes people come and say, listen, I have a word from God for you, Bruce. God told me, you know that, I've told you before, God told me to tell you to do this. I said, as soon as God tells me to do that, then I'll do it. <laughs> Be happy to. And, I don't, and I, don't mean to, I don't mean to disparage anyone, of course, but I'm just saying that unless you've done a miracle along with that, <laughs> now if you turn water into wine and then tell me, listen, Bruce told me to, uh, God told me to tell you this, then I'm going to listen very carefully. But short of you doing a miracle to validate the fact that you're an apostle, I think we need to stand down on that. I was in Africa a few years ago, and we were in the middle of a conference, and the place was full. And somebody, I was speaking at the time, somebody came up and interrupted me and whispered, he said, the, uh, there's some very important people coming in. And I said, well, good, let them sit over there, that's, that's fine. He said, no, no, you don't understand, they're very, very important people. And I said, well, who are they? Are they a bishop or something? See, because that's everybody wants the title bishop. And if you're not a bishop, you're a bishop of bishops. And if you're not a bishop of bishops, you're an apostle. But that one who was coming in, it was an apostle of apostles. And I said, let him sit over there. And I kept, I kept going because I thought, what a bad thing to show all these people if we just stopped and bowed to the apostle of apostles as they came in. 
Last time I looked, that guy hadn't done any miracles to validate that, in fact, he does have a gift of apostleship. So miracles were used to validate the authority or the, or the, the, the truth of what one was saying when the canon of Scripture wasn't completed. If I get up here and say something, you can do just like the Bereans. You can look through the text and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, it doesn't say that. At least in my opinion, it doesn't say that. You can look some things up. You can call me. You can write me an email. You can talk to another pastor. You can go to a seminary professor and say, does that really mean that? And they may say yes or no, but you have a way to validate it. In the first century, they didn't have that way. So they had particular things that they could do to validate a, a spiritual gift. But this was apparently a limited gift in, in Corinth. I wouldn't imagine many people had it, but a gift of miracles to another prophecy. Now, prophecy is a, is a very interesting gift. It's going to be mentioned a lot in chapter 14. Prophecy was also, like tongues, a revelatory gift. Sometimes we get so caught up in the function of prophecy that we think it's only predicting the future. You know how the magazines or the rags at the supermarket do that a lot before the year, at the year end, they'll predict things for the next year. Well, I predict that we're going to have a presidential election in November. That's not much of a deal. I mean, that's pretty likely to happen. It doesn't take any genius to predict, predict that. But, but when a prophet in the Old Testament predicted something, and it happened, that better come true. Because if a prophet predicted something, and it didn't happen, you know what the penalty for that was? Death. Stoning. Because you see, the, the, the act of being a prophet was so sacred and so special. If they were going to say something, you need to be able to believe them. If it turned out that they weren't speaking for God after all, the penalty was stoning. Now, we have some people that are modern-day prophets, or they would call themselves that out there today. There was one of these modern-day prophets in the early 90s in Denver, Colorado, in front of thousands of people, got up and made a predictive prophecy and stated it that that's exactly what it was. He said, I believe the homosexual community in the United States is going to be wiped out by the turn of the next century. I don't know exactly what day, but then he gave two specific years. It didn't happen. There's not a person on this planet that should be listening to that man ever again. Now, people still do, but they ought not to. Not if you're really looking at the biblical mode. That's predictive prophecy. But there's more to the gift of prophecy than just predicting something that's going to happen in the future. In fact, there's much more. The great bulk of prophecy wasn't telling something that was going to happen in the future. It was proclaiming a truth about what's something that's happening right now. If I could draw a first century parallel, or a 21st century parallel to what was happening in the first century, it was something akin to preaching or exposition but without the biblical text, before the biblical text was written down. Say before 1 Thessalonians was written, and there was a prophet in a church, and that prophet had a message about the rapture of the church. That prophet may teach a message about the rapture before anybody could go and look it up. That would be the gift of prophecy. We're going to talk about that a lot more because Paul is going to say in chapter 14, since both tongues and, revelation, and, uh, and prophecy are, are revelatory gifts, and the way you're practicing tongues is not revealing anything, why don't you at least, at least desire prophecy? At least desire to be educated with respect to the faith. But both tongues and interpretation of tongues will be covered in chapter 14. Now, distinguishing spirits is closely related to the gift of prophecy. And a gifted person with distinguishing spirits apparently had the ability to deem whether or not a prophetic teaching in a church was actually accurate. Again, this is back in the first century. Someone would get up and say, I have a word from God. And then they would preach that word from God. Someone else in the church would have a gift of discernment 
And they would be able to discern whether that was really a word from God. That was a gift. It was a check and balance in the first century. And then again, tongues and interpretation of tongues, we'll cover that at a little bit later time. Both Chrysostom and Augustine, the leading theologians of the Eastern and the Western churches in the mid to, to late 4th century, wrote that these gifts, all of these, in verses 8 through 10, all of them had faded out before their time. In fact, Chrysostom, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, actually skips verses 8 through 10 with, with very little comment at all. Because he didn't think it was necessary to comment on something that was no longer valid. In his commentary, he goes from verse 7 to verse 11. It's very interesting. And I appreciate where he was going with that, but I do believe it was a valid use of our time to take just a few minutes and explain what these gifts were in their first century context. But in terms of the flow of thought, I think Chrysostom had a point. The flow of thought in verse 7 is picked up again in verse 11. So let's go to verse 7 again. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now I've circled that verse in my Bible. And you, you, you may not be one that likes to do that. But if you don't mind circling something in your Bible, I would circle verse 7 of chapter 12. Because I think that is the key verse to unlocking the understanding of these very difficult chapters. That verse. But to each one, each one of us has a spiritual gift. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's that word phonorosis, which means a public manifestation, not something that's just only, if it's only between me and God, it's not a spiritual gift. It may be something, but it's not a spiritual gift. For the common good. If the way your giftedness is functioning is not for the common good, then it's not a spiritual gift. Again, maybe something, maybe legitimate even, but it's not a spiritual gift. So with that, then we move to verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individual just as he wills. So after going over this roster of gifts that were present in the church at Corinth, he returns to the big idea of these chapters. Paul's primary concern is for unity within the church at Corinth, and by extension, unity in all local churches. They had a problem with pride and selfishness, which manifested itself in various ways. We've chronicled some of those this morning. But in these three chapters, it's going to manifest itself in the abuse of spiritual gifts, both this hierarchy and how they're actually using them. There's no room for arrogance, Paul is saying. You may have been gifted in a particular way that you're quite proud of. But there's no reason to be proud about any spiritual gift. Happy, yes. Contented, yes. Proud, no. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gave that gift. No one earned the gift. No one deserves the gift. Nobody. It's grace. So there's no room for arrogance in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit distributes these gifts in accordance with His will. It's not my will. It's not yours. We don't get to choose. We don't get to fill out a questionnaire and say, okay, I think I must have gift of helps. You may or may not. God's the one that gave it to you. Maybe that helps you identify it, but you don't receive it that way. There's no hierarchy. I'll, I'll never forget the biggest, most blatant example that I've ever seen of this was on one of my early trips to Ukraine. The first time I went to Ukraine, I visited this monastery. It's on top of a hill. It's called the Lavra. The Lavra is one of the oldest monasteries in that part of Eastern Europe. It's beautiful. You can see it from all over Kiev, Ukraine. 
And I told Jim Myers, my host, I said, I'd like to go up there. And sure enough, he, he took me up there and he said, I want to show you something. Underneath here, it's going to blow you away. There's a cave that runs real deep into the earth right here, which real cold in there. And they have the skulls of old saints that went down into those caves to live permanently because they thought that would make them closer to God. And people just revered these saints. But they still have that, not just the skull, some of them, actually some over the whole body. So I said, I'm not really good with claustrophobic things. Can I think I'm going to be able to make it down there? He said, oh, yeah, no problem. So we go down there, and it's very narrow. I'm having to bend my head. It's dark. We keep going down and down and down, and I felt my heart rate going. I'm thinking, I'm not making this. There's no way. And then a bunch of school children came, a whole line of them, and filled up the whole hallway. And I said, Jim, that's, that's it for me. And I, I did like George Costanza on Seinfeld. I about knocked every one of those kids down, <laughs> getting out of that building. And it was terrible. And I felt bad about it. I apologized to all of them. You know, I didn't hurt anybody, obviously. But So the next time I went, this, this Ukrainian man who I didn't know, he just attended their church. He said, let me show you around Kiev. And I said, okay. And he said, you got anywhere you want to go? I said, I want to go back to the lava. I want to go down in that cave. He said, okay. I went down in the cave. I made it the next, the next time. There weren't any school children down there, thankfully. I made it. I got back up real quick. But when I got back up, I tell you all that to tell you this. When I got back up, I noticed there, there was a hush of, of people that were kind of in the courtyard area. And I leaned to the guy that was with me. I said, why is everybody getting so quiet? He said, somebody's coming. I said, who's coming? He said, well, it's those priests over there. I said, we're supposed to be quiet because they're walking by? He said, oh, yes. And here they come. There was two guys. They weren't even the, high, the head priest. I was looking for the high priest to come out, you know, so I could say hello to him or something. Of course, that wouldn't have happened. But they walked two by two in their long gray robes with their belt and their oversized crucifix their long beards and their hats. I love the hats. You know, they're, they're pretty cool. And you, they're walking along, and, and here we are, lined up along the side of the sidewalk, and, and we all stopped, and, you know, reverent respect, I guess. And the other people were, you know, bowing down like this. And I listened to, I listened to my friend again. I, I said, now, these are like the, high, the highest of the priests or something? He said, no, no, these are just the ordinary priests, but we, you know, we bow for them. I said, I'm not bowing for them. I'm a priest, too. Now, I'm going to show respect but that's, that's not right. That, and, and all these, these people were just slobbering over these people that were priests. Well, I'm glad that they are. And, and I, I'm all for showing the proper respect for the office. And, and no problem. But this groveling wasn't appropriate in any way. There's one person that we ought to prostrate ourselves for, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If the Apostle Paul came in here, we might all stand up, show him some respect, and greet him. And he's going to say, sit down. I came in here to worship the same Lord that you worship. Because I was gifted by the same Spirit that gifted you. He gifted me as an apostle. He gifted you as something else. But it's one and the same Spirit. We all serve the same risen Lord. And we were given the gift by the same Holy Spirit. That's the point that is being made as Paul, before Paul ever moves into the specifics of these spiritual gifts. No one earns a spiritual gift. No one deserves a spiritual gift. And he's going to explain in these verses that will come up next time, using this body metaphor, that all the parts of the body are important. Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit for the common good. They should never, ever be used as a source or a cause for divisiveness in a local church.